It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 361 for September 22nd, 2013. This week, Power Play, what you may not know about batteries, but should. An update on DivX. In short circuits, the good guys win one for a change. Google buys Bump, but why? Adobe releases a Lightroom 5.2 update and examining Google's canary in the coal mine. Batteries used to be just about the most boring topic imaginable. We had those big D cells, the slightly smaller C cells, and the little AA and AAA cells. You can still find the gigantic number 6 lantern batteries around, and 9-volt batteries that came along to power transistor radios 50 or 60 years ago are still commonly used in smoke detectors. The real advances began with the advent of rechargeable cells in the 1960s. Today, people expect powerful computers and phones to provide long service without being too heavy to carry around. How did all this come to be, I wondered? So I've got Steve Sutton, who owns several Batteries Plus stores in Columbus. Steve, battery technology seemed not to change very much from the early days of carbon-zinc dry cells until sometime in the 60s when we started seeing those NICAD rechargeable cells. But the rate of change has accelerated, and so has confusion. So I was thinking the other day, what the heck ever happened to B cells and A cells? And why were there no double C or triple C cells? Or were there? They're, they're still in some crop re- references, but I don't believe that they're they're made anymore. But uh, uh, we were getting inquiries on them, uh, you know, 15, 19 years ago. And, uh, but yeah, they, they, they just sort of disappeared because of the, the capacities that, that were, uh, that, that were in those were just sort of gobbled up with, uh, increases in the double A and the triple A sizes in particular. You could get more out of, out of those. So, uh, some, some of those sizes became obsolete. And with the, with the A cells, we had the double A's and the triple A's. Were there ever like double C's or double D's? Uh, in, uh, Strangely enough, in the rechargeable batteries, there's there's many many sizes that you've never heard of. Um, in drill packs, there's a size called sub C's, and then you've got different uh, uh, versions of that: a four fifths, a two thirds, a five fourths. Uh, they they make a a double D in a NICAD, and and uh, I believe even the maybe not the nickel metal hydride, but but uh, certainly in the NICAD, and it was just basically a a uh, same D diameter, but just two Ds high, but it was still just one single cell. So in the rechargeable market, there's there's many many sizes, none that you've ever heard of, uh, unless you unless you work in the business. I thought I was being facetious. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> yeah. Well, but but in the consumer world, then the uh, the engineers of different products are trying to keep it simple, uh, you know, so that. They can get uh, the maximum energy density for whatever size and, and uh, uh, capacity that they need, and and uh, double A's are still by far the largest volume of uh, of cell manufactured. 
matter of fact, in uh, some manufacturers, uh, even though the AAA is a smaller cell, it's either equal or, and in some cases, even more expensive than a AA because of the whole economies of scale and the production volumes that are associated with the high-volume AA. You can still go out and buy the old carbon zinc things that you used to find in, in flashlights. Uh, flashlight was defined at one point as a place where you store dead batteries. But now we've got the alkalines, and we've got all kinds of rechargeables. Do you see any particular situation in which single-cell, non-rechargeable batteries are a better choice than, than buying a, a rechargeable? Oh, certainly. Uh, there's lots of applications where uh, regular, uh, and, and I'm going to speak about alkaline cells, carbon zincs, uh, you're right, they're becoming, you know, something that gets thrown in, in, in uh, with, uh, uh, basically something new as a starter pack for you, not designed to last very long, but it, boy, it's the cheapest thing to get that device going. But uh, from, a, from a, an alkaline standpoint, I would say that that's still the best choice for uh, anything that would, uh, for instance, a TV remote, and, and I'm referring to low-drain applications where the device just doesn't require much, uh, the rechargeable chemistries, they'll actually self-discharge faster than you can use them up in a remote or in a smoke alarm or you know certain, certain low-drain applications like that. Um, the self-discharge rate becomes such a hassle that that uh, you know that that you'd be messing with that every month or two, where whereas an alkaline cell retains its its uh, voltage, uh, the shelf life is long, and it's a way better choice for low drain devices. The early NiCad batteries. I remember I was doing a lot of photography back in the uh, in the 1960s, and NiCads came along, and they'd work great for a little while, and then after not too long. You'd charge them up, you'd put them in, and you'd take three pictures, and they're done. People refer to that as the memory effect. I've heard some people say this doesn't really exist. But the recommendation back then, uh, and, and I've heard this from people recently, is you want to fully discharge a rechargeable cell, uh, at least occasionally, to avoid the dreaded memory effect. So does that recommendation hold for Today's rechargeable? Yes, in in uh, in, in uh, batteries that are still NiCad, and, and there's still some applications that still use NiCad and nickel metal hydride. That's still recommended. However, technology from the 60s till now, uh, they've done a lot of good things with both NiCad and then when nickel metal hydride came along in the 80s. But uh, I mean, capacity's increased. The, uh, how they made the cells, the internal workings of it, uh, helped with that, with, with those problems of, of memory effect. And, uh, but, but these are chemistries that just love exercise. And, the, and we say that the more exercise they get, the better they perform. So, so it's in your best interest to try to run it all the way down before you charge it up. Yeah, the, the nickel metal hydrides and the lithium ion cells are really pretty popular, uh, particularly in computers and phones and things like that. But we don't seem to see them in things like uninterruptible power supplies. Those still use a lead-acid battery, actually, or a, mm -hmm. a kind of a gel lead-acid. Why do those devices stick with the, the what would a lot of people would think of the old technology? Well, think about uh, first nickel metal hydride, uh, well, the transition from nickel metal hydride to lithium-ion. What they were looking for there, and especially mobile applications, was a lighter weight, higher energy density battery uh, for 
mobile applications like cell phone and laptop and now tablets and what have you. So, so that's what drove the transition then to lithium-ion, uh, whereas a UPS system, it, it sits under your desk. You're not picking it up and moving it every time. And steel lead acid gives you the highest amp hour rating or highest capacity for the lowest cost. And so it, it's still, uh, it's our second largest category that, that, that we have behind the whole car and truck battery category. So, so the applications for sealed lead acid are still very abundant. And we've got various types of batteries available in the same size. You mentioned AA's as being the, uh, the, the biggest seller, so let's, let's go with those. Uh, you can get those in uh, carbon zinc still. You can get them in NICAD, nickel metal hydride, lithium ion. Are there particular technologies that are better suited to particular uses, like uh, cameras versus flash units or PDAs and cell phones versus flashlights? Yes. Let's pick... Uh cameras first a lot of the a lot of the cameras uh um are you're right though if they are double a then you've got a choice to go with either alkaline or a lot of manufacturers have a a higher drain rate alkaline battery that you know they'll that they'll advertise as one of their premium brands or or uh or, or an offshoot of their premium brand and uh and and what they've done they've basically have, have have geared that recipe, so to speak, for that double A to be very good in, in high rate applications and and multiple applications, you know, or multiple cycles. And those are always a good choice. Uh, the, I, I'm a big fan of uh, the lithium double A's, and uh, now they've got triple A's. Now I'm a big fan of those. They're they're very lightweight. Uh, they typically give you way more pictures or flashes or what have you. I'm a big fan of those that are more costly, though. The rechargeable chemistries for things like that, uh, uh, I, I could believe it, uh, that it would be great for flash units. I mean, the, the professional photographer flash units, but I wouldn't see where uh, rechargeable would, would make sense with you know, regular consumers uh, for, for flash units. The uh, flashlight, I, I happen to be a, a, a flashlight geek myself, Sort of going back to what I was saying before about certain devices you don't use very much, and, and they would be considered low-drain devices. Flashlights are one of those things, you know, if if you're using it to take out the trash or, or you got a raccoon in the backyard or something like that, that's great. But, but very rarely do consumers use it for, you know, on continuously for very long. And, and if you do, then those would be applications that would be good to, you know, defeat it, rechargeable batteries, and then, you know, have, even though you have to go through the, you know, the hassle, so to speak, of recharging them, you know, the economy of scale is there uh, just because these things can get recharged 100, 200 times. I'm actually holding a battery in my hand right now. I'm, lo I'm looking at it. I can't read it. If I got out a magnifying glass, I could. I did this last night. Uh, in, in microscopic print, uh, you'll find terms on on this AA rechargeable battery, things like 1,800 milliamp hours, 2,000 milliamp hours, 2,200 milliamp hours. So obviously you're getting something more if you pick the 2,200 versus the 1,800, but more of what? The MAH milliamp hour is a capacity rating, and that's a number that they're assigning it based on a uh, a standard discharge rate Similar to what, uh, if, you, if I could refer to, uh, uh, car batteries have a cold cranking amp rating, 
Well, all the manufacturers agreed that, you know, that they're going to measure cold cranking amp rating in a certain format or, or with a certain test standard. Well, in milliamp hour for cells, then it, it's a uh, it's an agreed upon uh, discharge rate. It's not super fast and it's not super slow. It's sort of in the middle, and then so that uh, a person can look at those capacity ratings and know, you know, what the battery is rated at. So a higher number would indicate that it's going to, uh, in whatever device it's in, it's probably going to provide power for a longer period. Right. It, it's basically con- consider it longer run time, the higher the number. Let's take a, a quick look at battery safety. Uh, safety used to mean you know, don't leave the battery in your flashlight because it'll eventually leak. But then we got to the uh, removable, rechargeable batteries that you, know, you could put in a, a radio or something that had uh, exposed contacts. And, and then the warning became, don't carry these in a pocket full of keys and coins unless you want a hot pocket. So, so now we have laptop computers. And you know, a couple of years ago, there was a, uh, an online video of one just bursting into flame in the middle of a conference. Uh, of course, right. Boeing's new airplane has had some battery problems. Obviously, these are rare events, but mm-hmm. uh, are there particular safety precautions you ought to consider when, you've, when you're working with batteries? By all means. Uh, anytime you have the ability to short-circuit a, a cell and it's capable of generating uh, you know, a pretty good amount of, of heat, and, and it's, it's a it's a chemical reaction inside a, uh, an enclosure, whether it be a cylindrical cell or a, or a flat cell uh, like the lithium ion that's in your cell phone. But uh, all these have uh, potential for releasing energy, and if, they're get, if they get short-circuited, then, yes, it could be a problem. If you remember back when uh, lithium ion was getting lots of testing going on there because they wanted them in cell phones, well... Uh, they introduced them in some cell phones uh, in a test market, I believe it was in Canada, and they had several cases where the things were catching fire in the phone while it's up to somebody's face. And uh, it, and then you saw, you know, uh, it, it, it set lithium-ion back three or four years until it finally, you know, they figured out finally how to make the batteries uh, in, a, in a safer manner. Uh, and really what also came out of that is... Uh, certain uh, uh, safety devices within the phone for uh, short-circuit protection and things like that. Are there any myths that that you hear about batteries that uh, really ought to be debunked? My two favorite, uh, they're both in the car battery category, but uh, everybody's heard, oh, you can't sit that on the concrete floor. It it will discharge. Uh, That's true back when batteries were made out of hard rubber cases. Uh, but with uh, the, the technology changing and the polypropylene cases being used for car batteries, then, then that's a much, a much better insulator. Uh, it's stronger. It's, it's, uh, it, it's not necessary to put car batteries on wood if you lay it on a concrete floor. My second one is the, uh, you know, sometimes, especially deep cycle batteries, you need to refill the, the, the water. Uh, that makes up the electrolyte inside the battery. And it's always confusing to people about how they got to run out to the store and get distilled water for that. And, and you know, with the idea that only pure water should be used in there. And, and really the manufacturers are coming off of that a little bit, saying that, hey, just don't use higher mineral content water or well water, creek water, you know, that kind of stuff. It, and, and basically if it's, if it's safe enough to drink, 
and you don't mind the taste, then it's normally pure enough or clean enough to put inside a battery uh, to fill it back up. That's Steve Sutton. Obviously knows a lot about batteries. That's probably because he owns several Batteries Plus stores in Columbus. Thanks to Steve for enlightening us on battery technology. ago I explained how the video player Divix had wrecked my browser settings and strongly recommended using the VLC media player instead of Divix. Since then I've heard from a Divix representative who has promised to make the installation process clearer and more transparent. Until then though I still consider Divix to be unacceptable. Divix product manager Nancy Ngo has worked at Divix for more than a decade, and she asked to be able to clarify a couple of points from my article called Divix, A Good Video Player Gone Bad. I had said that the installation of an unwanted browser bar had been installed without my permission or knowledge, and it hijacked both of my primary browsers. Nancy says the browser bar and homepage search provider reset do not occur without the user's permission. Our installer pre-selects the offer by default, but you're allowed to uncheck the box. Unchecking means the browser bar will not be installed, nor will your homepage or search provider be reset. Well, it's my feeling that no add-on should ever be installed by default. Offer it, explain exactly what will happen, and then allow the user to select it if it's wanted. Later I said I can understand why Divix doesn't explain any of this in advance. And Nancy said, actually, we do include a screen within our installer that describes the offer. She then provided a link to a screenshot that she captured after reading the post. And on the TechBiter Worldwide website, there is a link to that screenshot she provided. In the screenshot, you can see the two boxes you would uncheck if you didn't want to accept the offer. As I told Nancy, usually I am very careful about watching for unwanted add-ons, and I don't recall seeing that choice. Specifically, I don't recall seeing the screen that she illustrated in the file on Dropbox. Now, this was not a new installation, but it was presented as a player update for the browser, so that might make a difference in what the user sees. I don't know. I said the URL passes a significant amount of information from my computer to Conduit. This isn't private information, I noted, but I'm sure that it does identify to Conduit the source of the click so that Divix can collect its pieces of silver. Nancy says we are paid for distribution of Conduit tools, but that happens at the point of installation, and we don't collect and so would not be able to share your or anyone else's personally identifiable information without your permission. A Conduit in my opinion, is actually more at fault than Divix because of the way it takes over browsers, destroys the user's settings, and then does everything it can to hide. This is not an uncommon comment. When I was searching for a way to fix the mess that Conduit had created, I found a large volume of vitriolic comments about the company and its product, including some that claimed incorrectly that it's a virus. You can read the rest of Nancy's message on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Basically, she says that they do try to make their messaging clear and that they'll try to improve that in the future. But for me, this is simply a question of business ethics and ensuring that a process will fail safely. 
That is, the default must be the path that will do the least harm. Even if the software presents a message that tells the user it plans to install an application that will cause harm, it is irresponsible to set the default response for the user to accept that mayhem. If the user simply misses the message and clicks OK, the extraneous application simply should not be installed. That's the reverse of what DivX does. If and when DivX modifies both its new installation process and its update process to take that into account, I'll reconsider my recommendations regarding the installation. As I said earlier, it is a good video player. It's just no longer welcome on any of my machines. In short circuits, the good guys seem to have won one for a change. The Federal Trade Commission says that a major Florida spammer has agreed to turn over all of the company's remaining assets and repay up to $377,321 to people it had defrauded. The company sent more than 42 million deceptive text messages to consumers. Gullible people responded to the messages that promised free gift cards worth up to $1,000, but found that they had to provide their social security number, credit card numbers, and other private information. Then they had to pay for additional services in order to receive the gift card. Obviously, somebody has a little bit of a problem defining the term gift. Rentbro and its owners, Jacob Engel and Daniel Passan, agreed to the settlement. The FTC says that RentBro's unfair and deceptive practices violated the Federal Trade Commission Act. Unfortunately, the two men were not required to admit any wrongdoing, and they won't serve any jail time. But at least the FTC has shut down some of the spammers that send these fraudulent messages. Overall, the FTC has started cases against 29 organizations since spring. Google reportedly has paid about $40 million for Bump, a service that allows people to share contact information and other data by bumping their phones together. That will allow the company to pay back the $20 million raised from venture capital firms and still walk away with more than pocket change, if they want to walk away. The only question I have, though, is why did Google buy Bump? The technology is about to become obsolete because new iPhones have that technology built in. Bump was founded in 2008, and at the time, it was impressive. Instead of carrying a stack of business cards to a trade show and coming home with a stack of other people's cards, those with Bump could just tap their phones together. But that was five years ago, several generations in technological time. Along the way, Bump tried to reposition itself as a social network and then a file-sharing service. Now it touts the ability to share photographs, but that marketplace is increasingly crowded. What Google may see in the application is a highly complicated process in the background that is presented to users via a very simple, easy-to-understand interface. 
And Google may see some opportunities for other types of exchanges, maybe using it to make payments, but that technology already exists too. Apple phones will feature AirDrop as part of iOS 7, the upcoming version of the operating system. Actually, that version was released this week. So Google may also want to use the technology to provide similar functions on Android devices. Or possibly it would fit in somehow with Google Plus or Picasa. All Google will say now is that Bump will be a great fit at Google. Adobe Lightroom 5.2 has been released. This is a free update for anybody who has version 5 installed. It adds support for 19 cameras and includes several process improvements. Among the cameras now supported are the Canon EOS 70D, the Fujifilm X-M1, and the Sony DSC RX100 II. The enhancements add a feather control to the spot removal tool and a smoothness adjustment to the color noise reduction portion of the detail panel. Both of these will serve to enhance the overall quality of images by making modifications more subtle. Tethered photography support, which allows a photographer to control a camera from the computer, is supported for eight additional cameras, and a wide variety of lenses are now supported by the Lens Profile System. That's the system that actively corrects distortion that is specific to each particular lens model. Adobe says that several bugs reported by users or discovered during Adobe's own quality testing have also been fixed. Full details are on the Lightroom Journal blog. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you are the adventurous sort, and particularly if you already use Google's Chrome browser, you might want to try the Canary channel. Canary is Google's bleeding-edge channel where you'll find products before they're anywhere near release-ready. In the old days, coal miners, of course, took canaries into coal mines to test the quality of the air in the mine. In a way, users of the test versions are the canaries in this case. Chrome actually has four release channels. First is the one that most people use, Stable. Next is the beta channel, the development channel, and then Canary. Using Canary is the equivalent of using a distant future version of Chrome. Features that are created there move to the development version, the beta version, and then the release version. Google describes it this way, and I quote, Google Chrome Canary has the newest of the new Chrome features. Be forewarned, it's designed for developers and early adopters and can sometimes break down completely. On the good side, you get to see what Google is working on for future versions of Chrome, but without any documentation or clues about what's new. You have to figure that out for yourself. And on the downside, Chrome Canary can blow up in your face like a loaded cigar. 
It is updated daily, so at least you'll get to see new bugs frequently. Developers stop work at 2 p.m. Pacific time, and the daily update includes the 40 best updates that are in development. Because of the way the process works, features that you see on Monday might be gone on Tuesday and back on Friday. Accepted improvements move from Canary to Dev and then to Beta. The stable versions have a lifetime of about six weeks. If you want to try Chrome Canary, you can download it from Google's website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. But it will not replace your existing stable version of Chrome, and you cannot set it up to be your default browser. Wise choices on Google's part. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.